Chapel, Mason City. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, for though I'm absent in the flesh, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Amen. Will you grab that mic and stick it over there for me? That'd be great. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Corey. Amen. Right? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your word here today. Thank you for giving us this wonderful record that you left for us. So we're all in a brand new year here, and it's so exciting and fresh, right? All the possibilities. And that might be the story of some, but for others, you might be like little Tommy, who was overjoyed to open his gifts on Christmas and found a brand new video game console. And Tommy spent hours playing it, completely absorbed in the virtual world. However, by the end of the day, he'd already beaten all the levels and grown bored with it. As he sat on the couch, staring at the screen with a sense of emptiness, he realized that he had fallen into the trap of thinking that material possessions would bring him lasting happiness. He learned a valuable lesson that day about the importance of finding life in things where there is no life trying to find life in things where there is no life. That's the reality for many people. The start of a new year, things are exciting, but they quickly go back to business as usual, drudgery, drab, unfulfilled, listless, no zeal. If you've been feeling listless, bored, unfulfilled, drab, lacking zeal, this passage may be able to offer you some relief or fulfillment. So just a little recap about Colossians so far. We're moving into the second chapter now. And so in the first chapter, we had an introduction and then Paul really spoke a lot about Jesus Christ and who he is. And you know the Colossian situation. There was a church that was on the verge of getting into heresy, in the verge of turning from the gospel into a perverted gospel, some contorted teaching. In this passage, as we move on now, we're going to hear Paul's heart for the Colossians. He lists five things that he desires for them. Number one, encouraged hearts. Number two, united in, that they would be united in love. Number three, that they would have assurance in their understanding. Number four, that they would be walking in Christ. And number five, that they would be abounding in thankfulness. And so in this wonderful passage, we see the wonderful heart of the Apostle Paul as a minister but we also discover this important key of living an exhilarating, zestful, abounding, abundant life in Christ. And I'll point that out 
when we get to the end. So number one, the outline's simple. It's two parts, but then these subpoints come under the second part. So let's start with the first major heading, Paul's conflict for the Colossians. I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And as for as many as I have not seen, have not seen my face in the flesh. This great conflict that Paul has for them. What does he mean that he has a great conflict for them? Well, Paul had a servant's heart. And those who love Jesus and love his truth, they know something of this heart that Paul had. What Paul expresses here is probably the most important qualification for a disciple. If you want to serve Jesus, if you, if you want to be Jesus' disciple serving him, the most important qualification, no doubt, that you probably can have is love for Jesus and for his church. Now, that's more important than talent, giftedness, any of these other things. A love for Jesus, which manifests itself in a love for his people, that's the most important thing that a minister can have. Anything else can be taught. That's a hard thing. <clears throat> Where he says he has a conflict. Now, in the Greek, you know, the Bible was written in Greek. It's translated into English. So sometimes I'll give you the idea of what the Greek word meant. I try to only do that when it's helpful. I don't do it just so you think I know Greek. I don't know Greek. I know how to read Greek commentators. And they tell us that this is an important word to understand here because the word in Greek is the word agon. Now, what does that word sound like? Agony. So Paul says, I had agony for you. I'm agonizing would be the verb form of it. It's a word that's commonly used in the context of athletes competing, agonizing, so that they would be um, fit in shape to win the prize. He says that I agonize for them. What does this mean? It means that Paul was so deeply concerned for the well-being of the Colossian believers that he was deeply troubled by the challenges and difficulties that they were facing. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, if you notice it in your Bible, it says that he was praying always for you. That's part of this agonizing. In his heart, he's disturbed about what's going on that he heard from Epaphras. He's disturbed as he's sitting in the Roman prison, and so he's agonizing. He's praying for them always. Paul's concern for the Colossian believers was fueled by his love for Christ and for them. Now, like John says in his epistle, that he has no greater joy than to what? Know what? That his kids, his children are walking in the truth, right? And he's talking about those that he'd minister to. I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth. And that's the heart of a disciple of Christ. That's the heart of a minister of Christ. Now, the opposite would come into play. If, if he had the greatest joy of knowing they were walking in the truth, then he's going to be greatly disturbed. And any disciple of Christ is going to be greatly disturbed if their children, literal or metaphorical children, are walking and getting uh, led astray in their walk. That's going to cause great distress. Now, he goes on and he says um, that Laodicea, I have this great conflict for those in Colossae and those in Laodicea. Now, Laodicea is another city in the Lycus Valley, which is near Colossae. And the issue is, is Paul says later on in this letter that he wants this letter read in the Colossian church, but he also wants it read to the Laodiceans. And you might say, who are the Laodiceans? Now, if you've read the book of, of Revelation in chapter 3, you can read about them. So if you'd like a little bit of homework, read Revelation chapter 3. 
which was written in 90 AD, about 30 years after this letter. And so you can find out what happened to the Colossian church by 90 AD. And I'll tell you this, Jesus isn't very happy with them. By 90 AD, Jesus says, you are lukewarm, so therefore I spit you out of my mouth. Now, the, I, I bring this up because, you know, thinking through this, I'm thinking Paul wanted this letter written, read in the Colossian church and the Laodicean church. We know by 90 AD, the Laodicean church has turned lukewarm. They're not hot or they're not cold. They're just kind of bleh. Or what do kids say today? Meh. Like M-E-H, right? That's how they were. And Jesus says, you know what? I don't go for people like that. I don't go for Christians like that. He says, you're lukewarm. I'll spit you out of my mouth. That's not useful. That's, he doesn't want anything to do with that. He wants them to repent. You know, he wants them to turn back to having a vitality in Jesus Christ. And he says, I wish you would just either be hot or cold. But because you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. It's useless right? Now, that's what happened to them in 90 AD. Paul says, read this letter to them as well. So my mind is thinking, maybe they didn't heed the warning that was in this passage, you know, because Paul was warning about this heresy that was likely the same thing in the Colossian church as the Laodicean church. It was likely the same. The scholars believe that that sort of heresy kind of stuck around in that valley, that weird blend of, uh, you know, spiritualism, mysticism mixed with Jewish legalism, that weird blend called the Colossian heresy stuck around sort of in that valley. The point is here is I don't think the Laodiceans heeded the warning and so that led them to being lukewarm. This brings up an interesting point. False teaching is pretty insidious and it not only destroys Christians or destroys churches, it can also make them lukewarm, right? That's another danger of false teaching. And we see that that's probably what happened to the Laodicean Christians is the false teaching came in and it made them lukewarm. And Jesus says, you know, I don't, I don't really want that. So in the remainder of this message, now we're going to see the five things that Paul desires for the church, for them to have encouraged hearts, be united in love, assured in their understanding, walking in Christ and overflowing, abounding with joy. Let's look at encouraged hearts. Colossians chapter two, verse two. If you see it there, he says that their hearts may be encouraged. Now, when the Bible uses the word, when you see the word heart in the Bible, it's not referring to that fleshy organ that's in your chest pumping right now. It's not referring to that. When the Bible talks about the heart, it refers to a person's feelings, thoughts, and actions. It's like the very center of who the person is. Now, you see that in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it, right? Very familiar verse, Jeremiah. That's why we need Christ, because our heart is wickedly sick. He's talking about the heart in a biblical sense there. Psalm 53, one says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Very familiar verse also. Revelation chapter two, verse 23, Jesus says that he is the one who searches hearts and minds, using those terms synonymously. Jesus searches the inmost part of a person's being. That's what he's getting at. So when you see the word heart used in the Bible, it's not referring to the fleshy organ. It's referring to who you are in your deepest being, right? Now, he wants them to be encouraged, it says. Now, that word in the Greek is the word parakaleo, parakaleo. And it's also the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete at one time, uh, a couple times in the scripture. Now, what this word means, encouraged, parakaleo, here's the definition. 
It means to come alongside to comfort, to encourage, to exhort, or to strengthen. Now, the context, here's what the Greek scholars say, is the context kind of determines the thrust of the word. And in this context, it has to do with strengthening. Because Paul's in the context of, hey, there's false teachers in the church. And so he's saying, I I want your deepest, most being, your mind at the deepest part of who you are to be strengthened. He wants them to be strengthened against this insidious attack, attack of false teaching that's coming in the church. An example of parakaleo would be, you know, to use it to give us kind of a, a picture of it, would be like a coach encouraging an athlete to push themselves harder during a training session. The coach might offer words of encouragement and support, reminding the athlete of their potential and encouraging them to give their best effort. That's an, that's a illustration. It's like Aaron here at the ladies encouragement group going, come on, come on, come on. You know, like you can do it. You know, like, whoa, that's kind of the paracoletal coming alongside of you and saying, stand up, be strong. You can do it. In Ephesians, Paul prays that the Ephesian church would be strengthened in the inner man. Remember that the great prayer in in Ephesians, uh, where it's a great place to learn how to pray for people is, is the great prayers in the book of Ephesians. All of Paul's prayers are, or any prayer in the Bible is for that matter. But he says there that I pray that you would be strengthened in your inner man. That's what he's talking about. His desires, they would be strengthened in their inner man, in their minds, in the deepest part of their minds. Now, going on, united in love, not only does Paul desire for them to be strengthened in their minds, but also united in unconditional love. Now, both are essential in a church, not, to have, not only to have people with a very strong mind strengthened in truth, but in a church, you want the church to be united, unified in love or knit together in love. Paul illustrates the importance of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me just paraphrase it for you a little bit. It says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, have the gift of prophecy, understand all the mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith, if I give everything I own to the poor, but I have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, right? So, Paul talking about there, like you can have all these, uh, you know, intellectual things going. You can have all the spiritual gifts. You can be a martyr. You could be giving away everything to the poor. If you're doing all of that, but you don't have love, if you're not joined and knit together into the body of Christ by love, he says it's useless. It's like somebody clanging on a cymbal up here. Can you imagine we get somebody to come join the worship team that has never played the drums a day in their life? And we're like, here, have a cymbal. <laughs> and they're up here going, ah, ah, you know, like uh, animal for from Muppet Babies, you know what I mean? Like, ah, you know, that's the whole idea is just somebody going around clanging and you're like, dude, will you just stop that, right? That's what Paul says a Christian is that's filled with head stuff, but no love. Where he says knit together. If you look in Ephesians chapter four, verse 16, it says, for whom the whole body, he's talking about the church, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, what Paul's talking about is he's using the you know, the illustration of the body of Christ, likening it to a human body. And he's saying that the members of that body are joined and they're joined and they're knit together, to use Bob Hoekstra's illustration from the church videos, right? They're joined 
and knit. Remember how many times he does that in those videos? Not only are they joined, but they're joined and knit, right? And you're like, by the end of it, you're like, man, I love being joined and knit together with the church, you know? Colossians 2.19, go ahead and look at that verse if you'd like. Same thing. It says, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. What Paul is saying there also is the church body, the members come together, we're joined together, but we're knit together with like ligaments, right? Just like a human body. Like if somebody's going to try to rip your arm off, you know, they're going to have to get through the ligaments and the skin and all this stuff. He says, you're joined and you're knit by ligaments, which are love, right? That's the love. What binds the church together is agape love, self-sacrificing love, which <clears throat> that's his next point here. Like what he says, knit together and then in love. Important for a church to be knit together in agape. John 13, 35 says this. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Being united and serving one another in love is the sign that we are truly saved. Right? John says, by what John says there, he's saying if you want a sign, proof positive that someone is a Christian, it's because of the love that they have for the body of Christ, for one another. It's, be, it's by the way they serve one another. And the word here is agape. It's not feelings-based love. It's service love. It's self-sacrificing, unconditional love. Now, when you see a Christian or someone that claims the name Christian and they have unconditional love and you can see that at work in their life in the body of Christ, the way they serve and love one another, you can say for sure that person, you know, that's, that's according to John, that's a person that's saved. You know, what Jesus says there, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 John 3.16 says this, by this we know love because he laid his life down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Brethren. That's what he means by um, being joined and knit together in love. Because God loved us. He laid his life down for us. Jesus did. We ought to lay our lives down for one another. How does this work practically in a church? I think this is worth talking about for a second. Because in America, we think of love as feelings. You know, that's, that's right where our mind goes right away. You know, like, um, we don't necessarily think of self-sacrificing service, you know, when, when the word love comes up. The word love comes up, we think of like, I really love chicken, you know. Man, I love pizza, you know. I love them bears. How about the bears, you know. I love my grandma. It's like, well, there's different kinds of love, right? Well, the Bible uses the word agape over and over again. That's the word agape. So how do we go about practically Agape, having agape, showing agape to one another. Well, Ephesians 4, 3 says this. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So in a church family, if we're going to be joined and knit together in love, we need to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. Right? This is profound. God says we don't need to create unity in the body of Christ. We need to maintain unity in the body of Christ. Do you see the difference? 
Creating unity would mean I need to find something in common with you. Okay? Maintaining the unity that's of the Spirit means God's provided that through His Holy Spirit. You and I are both Christians. You and I are both submitted to Jesus, and therefore that creates a unity. Now, we just need to maintain that in the church rather than being divisive, rather than being complainers, rather than being gossips, rather than backbiting, things like that. That's what he means by endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Be a peacemaker in the body of Christ. Preserve the unity that the Holy Spirit provides. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, please. Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. Talking about how do we practically maintain this love, this being joined and knit together in the body of Christ. I think this is incredibly important because as, as disciples, we need to be taught how to be the church, right? And this is very important here, being joined and knit together. This verse right here gives us a good indicator of these verses. Let me read it first, or sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 8. Paul says to them, fulfill my joy by being like-minded and having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each other, uh, let, sorry, but of lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. That's a good highlighter there. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is how you maintain love, how, how you're joined and knit together in love and you practically maintain that, is by not doing anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. It's unfortunate that there's a lot of self-ambition in the body of Christ. There really is. There's people that are just there to get theirs. That's what they're out for. And that's, you know, radically, you know, the church is to be radically different than the culture. The culture teaches that, that go get yours. You've got to look out for number, you know, number one, right? That's totally opposite of what Jesus is saying. You know, Jesus says, you know, that they'll know Christians by their love for one another. That'd be saying, you don't look out for number one, you look out for everybody else, Right? You know, I mean, of course you need to take care of yourself. You know, I'm not saying anything weird here. You got to take care of your basic needs. But the mind of a Christian is to not do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. Notice what it says there, that Jesus made himself of no reputation. Now, that's so contrary to the world today, too, because so many people are trying to make themselves of reputation, you know. And I'm, I'm kind of conflicted about seeing that done in the Christian world, you know, celebrities, you know, people starting, you know, like, let's try to get, uh, you know, as many people to look at me as we can, you know, I don't know. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition, conceit, make yourself of no reputation. By doing those things, um, that's how we maintain the unity and the love in the body of Christ. Humility is the key that opens wide the doors to love and unity. So 
Paul desires that they would be strengthened in their heart, in their mind, um, united, knit together in love. Now, going on, he wants them to have assurance in their understanding. <clears throat> Colossians 2 through 5 here, the last part of verse 2, and he says, And attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul also desires that the Colossians would experience the wealth of riches that come from full assurance. Look at the text carefully. Full assurance of what? Of understanding. Of understanding what? Understanding who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh, and in him is all you need for salvation and spiritual growth. You remember the Colossians situation? The false teachers were saying, you need wisdom and knowledge that's revealed through these weird different places, through mediators, not through Jesus. He's just a created being. He's important, but he's just created. But you need knowledge and wisdom that comes from ceremonies, from rites, from rituals, from works, from uh, different angelic beings revealing it to you. See, they had this sort of view. Have you ever seen a Russian nesting doll? Do you know what that is? It's like the little, you know, you get a, you get a doll, and you take the head off, and there's one that's a little smaller inside of it, and you keep going all the way to, oh, yeah. all right. See, it's, it's landing right there, yeah. That's kind of how they viewed spirituality. Like God's all the way on the outside. He's untouchable. But then there's these layers of spirit beings that maybe will reveal to you if you're initiated spiritual knowledge and wisdom, right? And Christ is just one of them. He's not God to them. And so do you see Paul's tone? He's saying, I don't want you to get, you know, all off base here. I want you to have full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God. What is the mystery of God? Last week, we talked about it a little bit. It was Christ in you, how Christ lives in you. Paul says, I want you to fully understand what that means as a Christian. I want you to understand that Christ lives in you, right? And the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he's saying to those false teachers, this is like a slap right in their face. You know, maybe not, a, this is a slap against their doctrine. And he's saying, listen, you don't need this stuff. These people are saying, what you need to do is understand Christ. Now, if you understand who Christ is and you understand Christian doctrine, you walk around with full assurance. That's what he wants. And he says this full assurance is something good, isn't it? Because he calls it riches. What are the riches of being fully assured of who Christ is? Ever thought about that? It's just a rhetorical question. What are the riches that you experience day by day knowing that Christ lives in you? What are the riches that you experience day by day knowing that Christ is God in the flesh and that everything that you need for spirituality is in him? What are the riches of that in your life? Full assurance is a very important thing. It reminds me of a story of Jimmy that I read. 
He was a shy and introverted young boy who really wanted to be part of the school's drama club. But when the auditions were announced for the annual spring musical, he worked up the courage to sign up. He practiced his monologue every day after school, but however, on the day of auditions, his nerves got the best of him and he froze on stage in front of the judges. Despite his clear talent and passion for acting, he was unable to show it due to his lack of confidence, his lack of assurance. As the list of cast members was posted and Jimmy's name was not on it, he couldn't help but feel like he'd missed a crucial opportunity in his life to pursue his dream. And that just illustrates the downfall of lacking assurance. You can have full assurance of who you are in Christ, that God is real, that God is, you know, the fullness of God is in Christ, and that all, everything you need for spirituality is in Him, that heaven's for real, that you're on your way there, that your salvation is sure. You can have the full assurance of these things by studying the Word of God, by believing it and applying it to your life. Now, there's more than just studying it up here, and I'm going to talk about that when we get to it, okay? If you lack assurance today, you need to get more understanding, not just facts, Okay. Now, a lot of what Jesus teaches Christians, and you know this if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, a lot of the lessons that God wants to teach, the things God wants to teach us, they're not revealed just through knowledge, they're revealed through obedience. Right? You don't learn things about Jesus until you start to do the things that Jesus says. It's not just knowing. I know people that know the Bible really well, but don't know Jesus. They don't know what it's like. They're still infantile in their Christianity because they might know all the stuff, but they've never obeyed the stuff. And so they don't know the heart of God. They don't know Christ. And a lot of times those that are not obeying, that just have head knowledge, they don't have any assurance. Paul wouldn't have that for them. He wants them to have the full assurance of the understanding of who God is. Now, since Jesus is all we need, there's really no reason to use any weird cult stuff or philosophical ideas or psychological theories to go along with the Bible. He is the only source that we need for understanding spiritual things. He says this, now I say, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words going on there. This is why he's talking to them. He's saying, I don't want you to get deceived with persuasive words. Words. I think it's interesting to ponder just for a moment before we move on that false teaching is persuasive. Now, when people come into a church um, with, you know, when, the, when false teaching comes into a church, in my 10 years, I've seen it happen a handful of times, right? And when it comes in, every time, well, never do they announce it. And, <laughs> you know, never do they come in and say, look, Bring in some false teaching. Everybody gather around now and hear the false doctrine. You know, nobody does that. In fact, it's the opposite, you know, to some degree. This person, these people, when they bring in false teaching to a church, they often think they're the most righteous person in the church. They often do. They really do. They think they know the Bible better than everybody, and they need to wake everybody up in this church. We've, we've had a few come through like that, that they've been either asked to leave other churches or they've left other churches and they've come here because they were hoping maybe to wake us up to some truth. And you know what? I've, I've watched a church family that is strengthened in their mind because of the systematic teaching of the Word of God and joined and knit together in love, and it doesn't phase anybody here, Right? And the body has an immune system and naturally expels those people. They either get with the program, with the scriptures, or else they get out of here, you know, one or the other. And it always happens. We just trust God to expel uh, things that are contrary to his word. And we equip people by the teaching of the word here systematically, right? And so 
It is persuasive though, when people come in, because like I said, they will come off as they know more about the Bible than you do. And they may in some regards, but they'll come and they'll bring stuff and it'll be very persuasive. And Paul says, this is why I, re I write this to you is because I don't want you to be um, deceived, uh, that anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, right? I was reading the Jehovah's Witness website the other day and how persuasive it is where they say, you know, Jesus is not almighty God, but he is the son of God. And you read deeper and you say, you read that they say on their jw.org website, they say that Jesus is a created being where the Bible says he's not a created being, he's eternal. And so it's persuasive the way that they lay it all out. You know, contrasting the differences between the, the soteriology of the Roman Catholic Church and the way Protestants are saved, and you contrast them, and you read the Roman Catholic way of salvation, and it sounds very persuasive that we're saved by grace, of course, but our works are needed to complete that, you know, salvation. You have to keep doing good works in order to complete it, to make sure that you're driven all the way home, essentially right? And the explanation they have for why they venerate Mary. And that contrasted where Jesus says there is no mediator between God and man, right? The explanations of why you're to call them father and where Jesus calls, says, call no one father, right? They sound persuasive and it's convincing. But Jesus, you know, Paul says here, he says, I don't want you to be deceived. How? How can you be, you know, on guard against this? You can be strengthened in your mind, in your inner man, in your inner woman, through the word, through knowledge. You can be joined and knit together in love and you'll stand firm against these things. He goes on to comfort them now. He says, for though I am absent in the flesh, meaning, remember he's in prison, uh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ that's going on there. Sorry, I don't have a slide for that part of the verse. I love what it says there, those two things, notice them in your Bible, that uh, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now, this would indicate, plus the time that he used the word lest in the last verse, he, obviously the Colossian church hasn't tumbled yet, right? Remember, he says, I, I write you this, so you won't get deceived, lest you be deceived. They're standing firm. That's what he says here. I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith. Those are both military terms, by the way. Good order. Um, it refers to a line of soldiers drawn up for battle, right? They're organized. They're, they're, there's order in their church. And the steadfastness refers to how a strong and solid group of his soldiers is standing together. So those two terms are military terms. They're orderly in their thoughts, in their doctrine, in their unity, and they're standing firm against the false teaching that's coming in. He wants them to stay strong in their beliefs and not let false teachings make them question what they know is true. Now, the next one, walking in Christ. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught. He's saying, you Colossians, you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and have a strong and unwavering faith in his deity and sufficiency. You have also been able to withstand the attacks of false teachers. It is important to continue following him and living according to his teachings. I like it, what he says there, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. How do you receive Christ? By grace, through faith right? 
Now, when a false teacher would come in and say, your faith in Jesus is not enough. You have to do works. That would be changing. See, what he's saying here is, as you have received Christ, walk in him. Right? You don't receive salvation in Jesus Christ and then do a bunch of stuff later to either make it effective or better. Do you know that you cannot improve upon your salvation? Do you know that? That through your works, you cannot improve on what Jesus did on the cross. Not through mystic rituals, not through keeping works of the law, observing the Sabbath, being circumcised, serving, all these things. They don't improve your standing with God. When I said yes to Jesus Christ, I was given the righteousness of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, his perfect record. That's how God sees you and me. Now I can't improve upon that. That's really good news to all of you here today. Now, if you're sitting there going, sweet, I don't ever have to go to church again and do any works for Jesus or serve him, anything like that. I would just tell you straight up, you do not appreciate what Jesus did for you whatsoever. You don't get it. Those that get it are here because they appreciate what Jesus did on the cross. Those who serve Jesus appreciate their salvation and that's why they're serving him, right? It's not because you think through serving him, you're improving anything like in your standing with God. You're righteous as far as God sees everybody in Christ. Now that kind of goes along with what's being said next. Look at that. Uh, walk in him, rooted and built up. Now when it says walk in him, that has to do with your daily conduct. So as you have received Jesus Christ, pattern your daily conduct after him. That's what he's telling. You've received salvation by grace through faith. Okay, now pattern your daily conduct after Christ. Yeah, I mean, you might need to get out your calendar, <laughs> you know? You might need to think this through, right? Of how am I going to pattern my life after Jesus Christ? And that's what he's saying. He's like, I want you to be walking in him. I want you to pattern your life after him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught. I'm going to get a little technical here for a second. Rooted, past tense sort of thing, built up, a continual sort of thing, and established in the faith. The Greek has to do with God being the one that does the establishing. Okay, so rooted and built up in him. First of all, rooted. When you said yes to Jesus Christ, your roots, your whole life, your spiritual life, your roots, everything about you, your roots became, you became a new creation. And at that time, your roots went down into Jesus. That's a permanent, you can't, you know, that's a one-time thing that was done when you said yes to Jesus. You are rooted in him. Being built up. That's what happens as you pattern your life after him. As you apply the things that you learn in the word of God, you, be, you become built up in him. You become more like him. You study the word. You apply the word. You obey the word. You and I get built up. Now, where it says established, God establishes us, establishes our faith as we are doing these things. And that's really where assurance comes from. I know that I'm rooted in him. I'm being built up in him because my life is patterned after him and God is establishing me and that's giving me full assurance. Rooted and built up. Imagine a tree that has been planted in a deep 
and nourishing soil. As it grows, it puts down roots that anchor firmly in place and absorb all the nutrients and water that it needs to thrive. Your roots are in Christ. At the same time, it puts out branches and leaves to reach up towards the sun, drawing energy and life from it in the same way we are rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. We are like this tree, grounded in our relationship with God and nourished by his word and presence, while also growing and flourishing as we reach out to serve and worship him. It's a good affirmation, right? As I grow in my relationship with Christ and become more you know, like him, become more built up in him, um, you know, God establishes my faith. I have full assurance. <clears throat> Last point, abounding in thankfulness. Colossians 2, 7, uh, the end of that verse, he says, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now, something a little technical again, okay? In the Greek, this is in the active voice. And so what that means, if you're not a Greek scholar, I'm not either. It means that this is the response to being rooted, built up, and established. So it could read like this. You uh, walking uh, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught results in abounding in thanksgiving. See, as I know that I'm rooted in Christ, I'm being built up in him, God's establishing my faith, my life overflows with thankfulness, right? Unlike little Tommy, sitting bored with his video game, feeling empty because he's tried to make life about things where there is no life. Rather than that, I'm abounding with thankfulness. You know, many people today are are bored. Have you ever heard somebody say they're bored? You know what my response always is to them? Because I always used to say that all the time. I'm bored, man. I'm bored. You know what somebody told me one day? They said, there's no such thing as boredom, only boring people. And I was like, huh, that's legit, man. You know? And uh, then I've never been bored since I came to Christ. I'll tell you that. Have you? I've never been bored since coming to Jesus Christ. I don't even know what that word means. It's not even part of my vocabulary anymore. Because those who are rooted in Christ and built up in him, being built up in him, established in the faith, serving him, living for him, they're abounding with thanksgiving and joy, gratitude. Do you know that gratitude is so important to your physical health? Do you know that? In 2015, a study showed uh, that gratitude in a person's life produces the following health benefits. Number one, it reduces symptoms of depression and anxiety. It improves your sleep, lowers blood pressure, improved immune function, increases feelings of happiness and well-being. Now, as believers, we have a tremendous blessing. We truly have resources for abounding in thankfulness, overflowing with gratitude. So good. I was a miserable wretch before coming to Christ. I was bored and depressed and listless. Felt like a kid that was bored with his presence on Christmas afternoon trying to find life where there is no life. So, these are the things that Paul desired for the Colossians. Encourage hearts united in love, assurance in their understanding, walking in Christ, which will result in abounding in thankfulness. This is what he wants for them. Paul was truly a man that was sold out for Jesus in his heart. Now, this is the thought that hit me this week. I kept praying, Lord, you know, I always pray, God, if there's something, some special thing you want, you know, just lay it on my heart or whatever. And this week it was this, that 
you know, a lot of the commentators I read and scholars is different sermons. I read through this and it was like they were coming from this position of this is Paul's heart. And as a faithful expositor, that's what you would do because this text is Paul describing his heart as a minister for the church, right? But my mind did this where it said, hey, Paul's totally sold out for Jesus. So that means that not only is this Paul's heart for the church, this is God's heart for the church, you know? It's profound, right? (laughs) I mean, it's very simple, but it hit me in a very profound way that God wants me to have a strengthened heart, an encouraged heart. God wants me to be encouraged. Do you know that? I've seen people just use the Bible to just beat people down, you know? I've seen husbands do that to their wives. I've seen pastors do that, just beat people under like, you're not doing great. You're, you're falling short all the time. You're full of sin. And they're always getting at them all the time. And God's going to come and judge you. And it's like, they're talking to the body of Christ like that. And it's like, dude, we need to be built up, man. Cause it's, God wants us to be encouraged. He wants us to be strengthened, not defeated. God wants us to be united in love. He wants us to be joined and knit together as a church body in love. That's going to take humility on our parts. That's going to take intentionality on our parts. That's going to take sacrifice to be united in love. It's going to have to take me setting something aside on my calendar to be a good church member to the rest of you. It's going to take sacrifice. It's it's not going to be like always putting the church at the bottom of the priority list. God wants us to have assurance in our understanding, I feel so terrible for you today. If you've studied the Bible, you know, you know, and, you're, and you still have a lack of assurance in who God is and who you are and what grace is and that heaven is coming. And if you're lacking assurance in those things, I just want you so badly to, to study the word and get into the word and to know and get more, you know, be, be solid in your understanding of who Christ is. And God wants us to be walking with his son. He wants us to order our lives after him, to pattern our lives after Jesus Christ, to do the things, to be obedient to the things that he's told us, not to earn salvation, but because we're grateful for the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life to save us. And so God says, if that's so, then walk in him. Now, also he wants us to then, as a result, he wants us to abound in thankfulness and gratitude. You ever be around somebody that's gracious? You know, if you could ever get a compliment from somebody, I was like, what do you, what do you think of so-and-so? You know, they are just a gracious person. They're so grateful for every single thing in their life. It's a healthy person, right? Most times. And that's what God wants for us. Like God wants us to be healthy, to abound in joy, thankfulness, and gratitude with people. I don't, that stuck, struck me in a real per- profound way. Like I know Paul wanted that for the Colossians, but I, you know, I don't think it's going out, out of the bounds to say that God wants those things for us. Why would Paul tell the church, you know, why would a guy sold out for Jesus be serving, telling him this, if he didn't want this for the church, right? If you're trying to, you know, find meaning in places in life, uh, if you're trying to find life where there is no life, you know, God doesn't want that for you. God doesn't want you to go around being bored all the time. God wants you to have a zestful, zeal-filled, exciting Christian life. It's not found in things. It's found in him. He's all-sufficient. There is no wisdom or some sort of knowledge outside of him that you need for this. You just need him. And he's willing to give it. 
Now, in conclusion here, all of these things involve the word of God, don't they? Think about it. I want your inner man, your heart, your mind, you know, to be strengthened. How does that happen? By learning what the word of God says. I want you to be united in love. Well, I need to learn how to love. Where do I find out how to do that? In the Bible. The Bible tells you what true love is. Man tells you love is conditional based on feelings. Maybe I'll love you today. Maybe I won't tomorrow. The Bible tells you what true love is. So I need the word of God for that, right? How about God wants us to have this full assurance? Well, we have full assurance. We have confidence in our faith as a result of understanding that which comes from the word of God. We learn how to walk, how to pattern our daily conduct after Christ from the word of God. And finally, as a result of this, we live lives abounding with thankfulness and gratitude. What a blessing. Lord, make us more and more a people of the word. In Jesus' name.